Hello friends, dear brothers and sisters from ASI and GYC. I want you to welcome to this workshop at the online ASI and GYC conference. Greetings here from the Joel Media Studio in uh, Germany near Stuttgart. And we are happy and privileged to be part of this virtual conference. And uh, together we are now going to have a workshop. Now, it will not be a workshop in the ordinary sense or in the uh, normal sense um, because uh, this is a pre-recorded message and there will be virtually no chance of real interaction unless you uh, write me an email afterwards and have enough faith uh, to believe in a soon answer from me. But I believe uh, it's still the, uh, a good opportunity to let the Word of God speak and in this sense, it will be truly a workshop because God's word is working on our hearts and on our minds. And I want to share a few ideas, some of them that have come recently to my attention by studying the Bible, that I believe will be very practical and helpful for all of us that are seeking to further the kingdom of God on this earth to proclaim the three angels' messages uh, I think we all agree that we have a burden for the message and a passionate desire to see the work closing and finishing, but we all see that somehow our efforts lack the power. And I guess that's one of the main reasons why the organizers of this conference chose this uh, important topic, ask. What if we ask? Now, when I was um, asked, to do a few workshop sessions, I thought about what kind of topic could be helpful uh, considering this major main theme. And I came up with some ideas on uh, prayer, uh, and then I was told that uh, already many more sessions will deal with prayer, and so I'm sure that some of the morning and evening devotions and some of the other workshops will uh, delve very um, particularly into the different aspects of prayer. And so I had to reconsider. And I came up with this idea. Our workshop uh, will be uh, entitled Give. What if we give? See, I believe firmly in my heart that we do not need to persuade God. Uh, we do not need to have some special techniques. And I'm sure that many of the uh, other workshop speakers or uh, devotional speakers uh, that will uh, preach on prayer will already have examined this idea. We, didn't, we do not need to, to um, persuade God to do something for us. He's more than willing. So there might be another side to the medal, another aspect to the entire thing. And I believe it has something to do with us giving something. And so in these two sessions, we will um, talk about uh, practical, uh, um, uh, we'll talk about ideas that will be helpful for practical work um, in how to give ourselves fully to God and then how to give ourselves to others. Because I believe it's important that when we are uh, doing mission work that we are fully dedicated to the Lord and we need to understand, I guess, and I think more clearly what it means to be given to the Lord and also we need to understand what does it mean and what does it not mean to give ourselves to others to live a self-sacrificing life 
And uh, before we start our um, uh, study of the word, and uh, I want to encourage you to take notes, to think and ponder the ideas. Um, before we start, I want to uh, start with a word of prayer. And wherever you are, I invite you to uh, close your eyes and bow your head with me together. Dear Father in heaven, it is a privilege to study your word together even if we are separated by space and time. Somehow it's possible that we still can have this uh, idea of having a conference together and uh, your words can touch us wherever we are. And so we ask that um, the study of your word will strengthen our mind, will encourage our hearts, <coughs> will also challenge our thinking and that you will reveal yourself in a powerful way that we pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a statement from Alan Weil that I want to start with. It's found in Steps to Christ, page 69, paragraph 2. And it deals with this idea of asking and giving. Alan Weil says, by faith you became Christ's. And by faith you are to grow up in him. And now watch this by giving and taking. Taking would be, you know, equivalent to asking something and taking it. Giving and taking. You are to give all, and then she specifies, your heart, your will, your service. Give yourself to him to obey all his requirements, and you must take all. And now she specifies again, Christ, the fullness of all blessing to abide in your heart, to be your strength, your righteousness, your everlasting helper, to give you power to obey. She says there are two things that needs to, need to take place. We are to give all and we are to take all. When we consider asking, our mind is on the taking, on Christ, on our help, the righteousness, the strength he wants to give us. We ask for that, but uh, it's very clear from this passage that even if we ask all, we will not experience the blessing that God intends for us if we do not give all our heart, our service, our will. And so we want to examine from the Bible how can we give ourselves fully to the Lord so that when we ask all, we receive all and not just a little bit. And uh, to start us off, we're going first to the Great Commission. The Great Commission, as it is found in the book of Exodus. Yes, you're right. In Exodus chapter 19, we find a Great Commission. Maybe your mind was running already to uh, Matthew 28, which is you know, very famous. But I want to consider um, with you at first, um, I want to consider with you uh, Exodus 19. Exodus 19 reads from verse 4. Exodus 19, verse 4, and running all the way to verse 6. You have seen, this is God talking to the Israelites while they were encamped at Mount Sinai. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is nothing else than salvation, redemption through the blood of the Lamb. Um, I'm sure you know this. Verse 5. 
Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now let's consider this for a moment. The Israelites as a whole nation were to be kings and priests. They were a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now when I would ask you, what is the special characteristic of a priest? Like, what is a priest all about? What's the essential feature of being a priest? I'll just give you a second or two to think about this, and you may even talk to me via the camera, just cry it out. Uh, I will not listen. Um, but maybe you're right, um, and maybe you, you got it yourself. A priest is someone that is mediating between God and man. Uh, someone that brings the requests of people to God and also who represents God to the people by teaching the word of God to the people. Someone that connects other human beings that are not so connected to God with God himself. Someone that is a link between God and uh, fallen humanity. And of course, the priest uh, is Jesus. But even in, in the Old Testament times, there were priests to convey this idea of linking God with people. And in a certain way, we are also priests. Uh, Peter makes this very clear, that we are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, uh, basically quoting this passage. So the Israelites were called to bring other people to the knowledge of God. That's why they were called a kingdom of priests. It was a great commission, very great, because in this passage it's very clear if you take a look that God has a global perspective here. He doesn't say I, uh, all the people um, um, of uh, Palestine, or all the people of the ancient Near East, he says all the people of the earth are mine. So God has a global perspective. He looks at the earth and he says all the people are mine, but you are my special treasure. You are a holy nation because you know me. You have experienced experienced salvation uh, already, you have my word, you get my law, and so therefore you will be special because you will be able to connect all the other people to me. And that was the great commission given to the, um, to the uh, Israelites, and I want to submit to you that this great commission never was abandoned. Uh, the great commission uh, in Matthew 28 is basically just founded on this very idea. Now, Israel at that moment was in, at Sinai. And uh, you can read in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, that there were only 11 days' journey from Canaan. So they're already kind of close to their final destination, where there should have been that uh, beacon of truth, that uh, light of the world. But God took several months uh, at Mount Sinai to prepare them for their special task. And the greatest preparation was his self-revelation while coming down, from, coming down from, uh, from heaven in fire, he gave them his Ten Commandments. Now, many things could be said about uh, that, uh, that uh, occurrence, but right now I want to focus on one point. You all know that when God gave the Ten Commandments, it was an awesome um, an awesome event. I mean, we say today awesome to every, um, every stupid thing, but it was really awe-inspiring. 
the, the trumpets were sounding and the earth was shaking and uh, the, the, the mountain was trembling and the fire was burning even into the midst of heaven, the heart of heaven, as uh, Deuteronomy says in, in the Hebrew. And it was really a spectacle. And people always have wondered, like, why did God declare his uh, love, his uh, Ten Commandments, in such an awe-inspiring manner? The first people to wonder were the people on the spot, uh, the Israelites uh, that were encamped uh, at the mount. And we read in verse 19 that they were afraid, basically, of God. It says in verse 19, Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And now listen to, Jesus, uh, listen to Moses in verse 20. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us, uh, verse 20, sorry. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, that you may not sin. Now, frankly, I often have quoted that verse, and I often focused on the second part, that we should fear God, that we should not sin. And that's a very profound an important idea. And as soon as we hear the fear of God, our mind just uh, immediately runs to some very well-known passages. I mean, uh, think for a moment for yourself, what are the passages that come to your mind if you think about um, the fear of God? Surely it would be uh, pro um, uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, or Revelation 14, verse 7, fear God and give glory to him. Or maybe you are thinking on uh, Proverbs 8, verse 13, where uh, the fear of God is defined, or Proverbs 1, 7. All of these verses were unknown to the Israelites standing there. And watch this verse again. Moses says, do not fear for, and I'm paraphrasing my own words, God has two objectives. He has come for two reasons. First, he wants to test you, and he wants that his fear may be for you. So basically, Moses is saying, don't be afraid. God has two objectives. He wants to test you, first, to see, second, whether you fear him. Now, if you were an Israelite standing at the mount at that moment, is there any story that you could have known already that would come to your mind right now? A test to see whether we would fear God. If you're a Bible student, you may have already guessed it. It's a story from the first book of Moses, from the book of Genesis. It's a well-known story that until recently I've never really linked with the story of Mount Sinai. In Genesis 22, we find Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, and we find verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. In the Hebrew, it's the same word. And said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And now, then you know the story, of course. Abraham is asked to give his son. And then when we come to the close of this uh, narrative in verse 12, it says, and he said, that the angel of the Lord, that's basically Jesus, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you do what? That you fear God. 
since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So if you would summarize the entire event from the perspective of God, if he would have, maybe he has, he, if he had told some angels before what he's going to do, he would say, I'm going to test Abraham first, whether he fears me. Basically the very same thing that God wanted to do with the Israelites. You could turn this idea around and say what Moses really said to the Israelites at Mount Sinai was, God has given you a great commission, so the one thing that he wants to, wants to do now, he wants to see whether you, as Israelites, whether you have the faith of Abraham. Because Abraham was tested and it was seen that he feared God. And, and so Moses said, don't panic. God has only come for one reason. He wants to test you to see whether you him. Now God himself is very clear how he, I mean God knew, knew it all the, all the time already because God knew the heart. But when God does something like this, he reveals the heart, our heart to ourselves and to the watching universe. So what was it that clearly made it abundantly clear that Abraham feared God even when he was tested? We just read it in verse um, 12. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. That re reminds us of verse 2. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. It's about giving. The faith of Abraham that shines out in this chapter so remarkably, so profoundly, almost uh, mind-blowingly, has to do with his willingness to literally give all when he gave his beloved son. Uh, you could argue he, he gave more than himself. He loved his son so much. He was willing to give all. When he gave Isaac, he gave his heart. When God gave, gave the Ten Commandments, this is what he really wanted to see. He wanted to show the Israelites, are you really giving your entire heart? Because only then will the mission that I am having appointed for you, only then will that mission be successful. Because in the case of Abram, it's clearly seen that his faith that was demonstrated by giving all to God would lead to a successful um, accomplishment of the gospel. In verse 15 it says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. This is God um, uh, giving an oath by himself. Uh, it's a very powerful topic. You study this on your own. Says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. God is promising tremendous church growth and a success in the end, victory over the enemies, because Abram had this kind of a mindset. In your seed, all the nations 
of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It was the faith of one single person and it would have a global effect, an impact for generations, yes, for ages. He was someone that was willing to give all that was in his heart and God could use that to make incredible statements about the power of the gospel and the success of the gospel and the blessing that would not only come to the people of God in the Old Testament times, but to all people at all ages with the final outlook that the gospel would be victorious. That's exactly what we want to see. And God is very clear. It's because you gave all. Now it's interesting. When Abraham gave all that he had, he received something. And he received something that he would have never understood if he would have not gone to Moriah. He received a much clearer understanding of the gospel. We don't have time to study into all the details of this famous and, and remarkable chapter. You, you can do it on your own. But just to make this point very clear, in uh, John chapter 8, we are told by Jesus himself, in John chapter 8, verse 56, your father Abram rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. He came with a very sad heart, but he went away from the mountain with a very glad heart because in this experience, he understood something of the gospel. He understood that when he saw the ram and substituted the ram um, for his son, that was not the final solution because he said the Lord will provide on this mountain. And he understood that when he had said that God will provide a lamp, that was prophetic. And that's why John would call Jesus the lamp of God. When Abraham gave all that he had, he received the most clear and, uh, and, and exact representation of the gospel. His imp he was impressed with the fullness of the gospel in a way that he had never seen before. And that's why, and that has a very simple reason. It is because the gospel itself is based on the idea of giving. And uh, this verse uh, is well known to all of us in John 3, 16. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life in order to present, to, in order to understand a message that God has given all, we need to give all to really appreciate at least somehow what God has done. And in order to really make an impact in our mission work with all our ministries and all our projects, we need to have this heart that gives all. Because only if we give all, we start to understand the God of heaven who gave even more than we can think. The more we give, the better we understand God. And only if we give all, we can give a truly, uh, a, a true representation of that gospel that is so dear to our heart. And that's why the Bible has a very clear call to me and to you in um, Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23, 
reading verse 26. The Bible says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. This is God talking to us. God talking to us as a father to his child, saying, my son, my daughter, give me your heart. In the same way as he asked Abraham, give me what is in your heart. And in Abraham's case, it was Isaac. He was, uh, everything in, 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 in Abraham's thinking revolved around Isaac. Whatever is in your heart, God can only bless you tremendously. He can only bless my and your ministry. Whether it's a, it's a, it's a fully organized uh, ministry or maybe something we do private on our own, in the church, um, in, at our business place, wherever we are. God can only bless our effort to the fullest if we are giving our hearts to him. Yes, we may give our talents. We may give our abilities, we may give our contacts, our networking uh, abilities, our technical understanding, our skills, our rhetorical um, uh, talents. We may give all to, to him, all, all of that. But I have this impression that we have given more of that than of our own hearts. And that's why Basically, Adventism is this uh, interesting picture of many, many well-meaning and um, organized, sometimes not so organized, but generally speaking, organized and um, very excited missionaries and lay people that do not really have the impact that we see foretold in Revelation 18. We're not even having the impact that the Millerites had uh, compared in, in statistics and numbers. Could it be that we are asking quite a lot, but are not that willing to give what we need to give? The Bible is very clear. It's not an, just an Old Testament thing. Uh, Paul, the great, uh, missionary, the, the self-supporting worker, uh, the evangelist, um, the businessman that uses business to, to bring the gospel to the people, the frontier missionary Paul, that in so many respects can be a role model to us as we gather here at uh, these uh, ASI conference and a GYC conference, the one that really had a heart to to uh, mentor young people and bring them uh, into the mission front line. This Paul says in uh, chapter 12 of the uh, letters to the Romans, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren. This is not just, you know, like, think about it, you, you could do this. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, that is yourself, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul the missionary tells the church, not only the Romans of his age, but to us as well. He tells us to give ourselves a living sacrifice. 
That would be the service that God would um, rejoice in. That's the kind of missionary service that God delights in when he sees not how many people we've contacted and how well we have networked, but when he sees what, whatever we've done is done wholeheartedly with all our hearts, then something is uh, in our midst of in our project. It's the power of God because he can reveal himself. And so we have to renew our minds. Give our we have to give our minds so God can change us. He can mold us. There's this beautiful imagery from Jeremiah 18, and I'm sure you are familiar with that. When we think about our ministries, we think about our personal work in the church, um, in missionary lines, whether it's in the health work or the canvassing work or the publishing work, uh, technology, whatever we are, um, a part of education, are we actually really putting ourselves into the hands of the potter? In Jeremiah 18, from verse 2, uh, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah says, and said, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was smart in the hand of the potter, so he made it again to another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. And then, of course, the application is made to the people of Israel. And the point is that God says, I am the potter, you are the clay. If we put ourselves into the hand of God, he can form us. And he can form our ideas, our words, our actions. He, he can mold and form our ministries in the image that he wants to see. Now the practical question may arise now. I see the necessity. I see maybe the lack of dedication in my own personal life. I see the necessity of uh, dedicating my entire mission work more fully to the Lord, but how am I to do this? Like, in a practical sense. W have I not given all when I, when I committed to Christ, when I was baptized, when I found my ministry, when I first came to I see? Am I not already committed? Like, how can it be that I really felt I'm fully committed and now I realize I'm, I'm maybe not or there, there's something missing? I want to share with you some insights from the Word of God um, that will help us if we take them to heart to understand what God meant when he came down on Sinai and when he called, uh, called Abra Abraham in, uh, in uh, Genesis uh, 22 and when he inspired Paul to write these things. Because that's something that can be understood and should be understood and, and I should practice it and you should practice it. It's something that is absolutely mandatory if we are to ask. And in order to understand this practical point, let us first go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, and uh, we start reading in verse 36. That's Jesus shortly before his death. Matthew 26, 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. 
And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, had Jesus given himself already? You all know the story. You know that very soon in the next verse, we are going to read about a point in Jesus' life where he had to make a decision whether he, are, he is to maintain his dedication. He has to dedicate himself again. But did he, have, did he dedicate himself before? Had he given himself before? The answer is very profoundly yes. Just to name a few instances in Revelation chapter 13 and there, verse 8, Revelation 13, verse 8, the Bible says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Before there were humans, Jesus had given himself to the cause of God to the gospel even before humanity existed. When humanity existed and fell, when, it, when Adam and Eve were um, brought under the, uh, under the kingdom of Satan, it was on the very same day that Jesus gave himself again to the cause of God, saying in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And then veiling it a little bit, he shows how he will do it. He says, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise the seed of the woman. He shall bruise your he head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus said, I will come as a human being and crush you, Satan. He gave himself at that day again because he had been in counsel with his fathers three times Ellen White says he went into this unapproachable light and after the third session it was clear that what he had already committed to would now actually be put into practice he had given himself and it was something that he did totally voluntarily out of his own, he says himself in John 10, verse 17, Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. He says, when I approached my father saying, I want to give all that is in me. I want to give myself for your cause. It was the father that was so thankful. Although we know from other statements from Ellen White and also we can glean it from, first, uh, from Genesis 22 that it was a struggle for God that he actually he could hardly agree to it because he loved his son so much. On the other hand, God was so happy that now because of the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus, the cause of God could shine the brighter. God was happy. He loved him even more. And so all along the way of sin and suffering, Jesus was giving himself. When the Israelites were camping at Mount Sinai, he not only spoke to them on Mount Sinai, he gave himself. He said, build me a sanctuary. Uh, build me a tent that I can dwell among you. He gave himself to walk and talk with them, to live in their very midst. 
And then in Psalm 40, we read prophetically about that time when Jesus, after um, roughly 4,000 years, made good on his promise in Psalm 40, reading verse 7. The Bible says, Then I said, Behold, I come, I give myself. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. O oh my God, and your law is within my heart. When Jesus gave himself, he did not do this in order to gain any merit uh, in the sense that uh, God didn't like him before. When he, I mean, he, he gained merit a lot uh, that he could give uh, to us, to be sure. But he did not try to persuade God or to, 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 to make God love us more because he gave himself, no, no, he gave himself because he delighted in the will of God and so he gave himself to become a human being. Uh, John 1, 14 says, the word became flesh, not just for a season, not just for a few days or months or weeks or even years, he became our brother for eternity. The Bible is very clear that he gave himself not temporarily. No, when Jesus comes back, he will come back as the son of man. Paul says that a man will judge the world in um, Exodus, in, in Acts 17. And um, Daniel saw the everlasting king coming to the father as the son of man. He has given himself. And then at the River Jordan, he gave himself again. He got baptized. He left his occupation to give himself to full-time ministry. And thereby he gave himself to humanity. And uh, we will delve into this in our second session a little bit more. And now we see that Jesus all along the way, he gave himself and gave himself by intent and by words and by promises and by actual things that he did. And finally, even when he became a human being, he had given all in Gethsemane. He's at a crossroads again. Again, there is this opportunity to leave the path of full dedication. In Matthew 26, now we read verse 39, knowing that he had given himself over and over again. In Matthew 26, verse 39, it says, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh my God, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Have you ever in your life as a missionary, as a project leader, as a ministry um, member, as a member of the church, as a young person, older person, have you ever come to a point where you, where you had, where you saw what God was calling you to do and you had different plans? That happens. It even happened to Jesus. What now? One thing is sure. We have to renew our dedication always along the way. When the conflict grew heavier, Jesus had to decide again. And now it's, imp 
very important what he did. He stated the desire of his heart. He was not feeling that he couldn't tell God because his father knew anyhow. So he told very honestly what was in his heart, but then he made a decision that is so important for us to understand. He said, not as I will, but as you will. Why did he say this? Was it because he felt he had to? Was it because he, he felt forced to abandon his own ideas, to blindly submit to someone else? No, 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 no. He had learned the lesson. He had learned the lesson and he knew from his own heart that God's will is always the best. We all know in Romans 8, where Paul says, and we quote it often, and even in our ministry work, it's not often that appreciated when it really gets tough. In Romans chapter 8, it says in verse 28, and we know that all things, how many things? Does your translation also say all? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Jesus loved God and he was called, though he knew whatever be happens to me, if it's God's will, it is the best. Because God is love and he never changes. So whatever happens to me, when I love God and when I honestly seek to glorify him, it's always the best. It is always better than my own will making that decision in your head. Not because of feelings, because your feelings will be very different. Not even because of um, your thoughts, because your thoughts may be different, but because you believe, you trust that God's plans for your ministry, God's plans for your mission project, God's plans for your personal life may be, not may, will be better than your own plans. You trust him. And that, by definition, is to give yourself to him. It's actually not that difficult, technically. One thing is sure. When Jesus made this decision, he made the best decision he could make. Because now, the prophecy can be fulfilled that was written down in Isaiah 53, where it says about the Messiah, about Jesus, after his crucifixion, in verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus will one time, and I guess it's already happening, but he will one time look back and he honestly will be able to say, praise the Lord, praise to my Father that I trusted him and not to my own feelings. I now see the travail of my soul. When I couldn't see beyond the portals of the tomb, my father could. And therefore I trusted him and not my own feelings or my own thoughts or my own plans. Therefore I gave myself to him even when it felt like a great sacrifice. And for Jesus, to be sure, it was a profound sacrifice. But it was the best thing that he could have done, and it was in his own interest. It was, in, it was so that he, looking back, 
will say, that's what exactly what I really wanted. Although as a human being at that moment, he couldn't really grasp it. So when we give ourselves to God, we do simply a favor to ourselves. And if we understand this, we will be much more likely to give ourselves to God. And this is something God doesn't ask us from one day to another, just when we make his acquaintance to give everything we have. He gives us little tests so that we can prove him to get more trust and more trust, to put more weight on his promises. You can see this. We're, not, we're running out of time, so I'm just uh, going very quickly over this, but you can see this in the life of Abraham. At first, he had to understand that it's best for him to leave his homeland and then the family of his father. He might have different plans, but he learned that it was best for him. Later in Genesis 13, he, was, uh, he, had, to, he had to learn the lesson. It was best for him to leave Lot and the, his shepherds, the shepherds of Lot. And then in Genesis 15, he was dismayed. He thought, that, where's my reward? And he made plans that, his, um, this, that his, um, all his possessions would go to Eliezer of Damascus. But God said, no, 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 no. Trust me. Give up your plans. I will give you an heir that comes from you. And so he learned that it's best to follow God's plans. And then in Genesis 16, he failed to do this. Abraham was basically a missionary. He was a self-supporting ministry going around Canaan and erecting altars and proclaiming to the people by his words and lives the gospel. And then he failed himself when he took Hagar, when he couldn't when he would not believe that God's plan is best, then he took his own initiative and then watch God coming to him a few years later. Actually, it's 13 years later. Maybe sometime God is, sometimes God is letting us run our way for some time. And the fact that for the last 13 years we have run our ministry in this way, or done our mission work in this way, is not proof that God may have a better plan. Abraham really thought the fact that for 13 years Ishmael was the heir that was sure enough evidence that God was okay with this. But God came to him in Genesis 17 and said, no, 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 I have different plans. And it's interesting how he worded this in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. That's a command. That's a, a promise, by the way, but that's something that Abram should now do. Seemingly, it was not the case until now. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Wait a minute. Did not God already make a covenant with him in chapter 15? Yes, he did. So there was a full-hearted commitment from Abram, but 13 years later, he had to renew this commitment. He had to go one step further. He had to go deeper because in the meanwhile, he had a little bit, or a little bit, he had quite a bit separated from the will of God by taking Hagar. What we need is not a single dedication. What we need is a continual dedication that is renewed over and over again. So when God speaks to us and says, I have seen this for the last 13 years, how you run your ministry, how you do your mission work, that's uh, I have seen this, but I have better plans. And do what we can see here in Genesis 17. 
In verse 15, it says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her, that I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. King of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and uh, laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? God's plans for your ministry, for your life, for your church may sound stupid. Extraordinary, unrealistic. Watch this. Verse 19 and oh, 18. And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Here's my plan, God. You know that in this chapter, God gives him his sign for the covenant. That sign is circumcision. But the circumcision was given, first of all, to remind him whenever he was in danger to once again do this mistake, a mistake like the mistake with Hagar, he would see at once the sign of the covenant. That's an important point. But this sign of the covenant was really a sign of the circumcision of the heart, that is, the circumcision of the will, that is, the cutting away of ideas that are contrary to God's plans. And here, Abram is presenting to God, the patriarch is presenting, the missionary is presenting to God and saying, this is my idea, it worked the last 13 years, can we not do it this way? God said, no. Listen to the next verse. Then God said, no. That is the knife that is cutting his heart. It is circumcising the heart. And because Abram submitted to that heart circumcision, he was later able to even come closer to God by experience the things he experienced on Mount Moriah. Our faith will only be victorious if we believe that God's plans are better than our plans. Even if they sound unrealistic to us, when he came then to Mount Moriah, he had a track record of experiences, starting with comparatively little things. I mean, it's not a little thing to leave your country, but comparatively little things. And he had tested and tested and tested over the times. And he had seen whenever God promised something, it was trustworthy. When human beings had, he had made some covenants with human beings, it was not trustworthy. But he knew, I can trust God. He always did the best for me. So when God asked for the most, for the greatest sacrifice, when he was, uh, when he was asking him to give all that was in his heart, Abraham knew, whatever God intends, it's the best for me even if I do not understand. And what to human eyes looked like a cruel command was instead a revelation of redemption. God was opening his heart to his friend. Never before was Abram so close to the heart of God. And then he soon understood the gospel better than ever before. And God, the promise of a victorious gospel based on that willingness to give all. You know what? Abram got Isaac back. God does not always test us to take things away from us. He wants to see whether we love him first, whether we trust him most. Don't panic if God calls you to lay something on the altar. If it's best for you, you will get it back. 
if he takes it away then only because it will be a hindrance to what you really want, to love God and to preach the gospel to all nations. My friends, let us lay ourselves, our hearts, today on the altar. Let us talk with God and let us, let us resolve that when God talks to us, that we will not consider first our thoughts, emotions, feelings, whatever, but we will trust because we have already made these experiences so far that what God wants us to do is best for us. Should, should we not pray? Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, we're grateful and thankful that we can know for ourselves that you only want the best for us. And even if our human eyes, because of our narrowness and limitedness and because of the sinfulness of this world, maybe even if we cannot see this, we can still trust you. Because we have had many reliable experiences in the past that have proven to us that your word can be trusted. And if that has not been our experience so far, please give, a, give us that experience as soon as possible. Bring us into positions and um, situations where we can trust you and experience that you will honor your word. And let us learn that we can only receive all if we also give all, our heart, our service, whatever we have, knowing that you will only take away the things that are harmful to us anyway. Thank you for being such a wonderful and loving God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In uh, our next worship, we will talk about the second aspect. So I hope you will join us then again. Until then, I wish you all the best and God's blessing. Uh, God be with you. Amen. <laughs>